everyone. Welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, writer, researcher, and well, podcaster. I am here today with a very, very special guest as we had it back, back to the past, all the way to the 18th century with the fantastic and incredible Dr. Sam Hurst. Welcome, Sam. Hello. If you'd like to talk a bit about what you've been doing lately and romancing the Gothic, feel like it's a great, and your research is a great way to intro into what we're going to talk about. Okay, yeah, so uh, I'm Dr. Samhurst, and my research specialty is in theology and literature, um, and I specialize in the 18th and 18th, early 19th century Gothic. As part of my extracurricular activities as an academic I run uh, the Romancing the Gothic project which started off as me doing a free lecture online and turned into me doing a lot of free lectures online and then it turned into uh, me organizing a lot of free lectures by lots of different people with lots of different areas of expertise all vaguely connected to the gothic or the spooky or the supernatural or the dark or the horrific and horrendous and so, yeah, that's what I sort of do online. We have a YouTube channel where you can catch up on old classes. We have a webpage which has extra blogs and information. And we run weekly classes and we run monthly events that include as well uh, creative elements. We have writing workshops and we showcase authors and we get to chat and discuss with authors. Um, and also connected to that, we have a book group uh, every week where we read different books, again, vaguely connected to the Gothic and invite authors when we can to come and discuss their works and ideas with us. There's a lot of fun stuff. I definitely recommend one of the one of the best things out of 2020 that we've been able to enjoy. <laughs> and uh, thanks again for all you've been doing. There's a lot of great stuff. And if in case you remember, we've had episodes with John and Ash of the Horror Vanguard, both who have at this point done different lectures on Romancing the Gothic both incredible and quite different so definitely worth checking out and yeah like Romancing the Gothic is really fun there's a lot of stuff for as much involvement or not as you like both in person or just following afterwards so definitely check it out and support Sam if you can like it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of work and if you can help keep the lights running it's, it's it's always good it's always good yes thank you <laughs> it is good we're trying to make the project self-supporting because uh, the emphasis is all on getting education to whoever wants it whoever wants access to it so we want the project to continue offering free classes uh, but of course that does take a little bit of support to be able to do um, because we also want to make sure that speakers and contributors uh, get some money. We don't want to be part of the exploitative system that is often kind of part of academia, where we expect a lot of people to work for free. Um, so, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So today, today we're going to talk about, uh, it, I was genuinely very surprised at how much I enjoyed it, <laughs> a novel of Sam's choice, which was... 7077's The Old English Baron by Clara Reeve, or as it was originally titled, The Champion of Virtue. So why did you choose this, Sam? Well, I chose The Old English Baron partly because it's quite short. Uh, so it's a nice, easy access point for the early 18th century Gothic, because they do tend to run into the sort of four, five hundred page kind of territory. 
But I chose it as well because it's less well known, but it's a really key novel in the development of the Gothic. It's not perhaps as dramatic or as exciting as some of the others. Uh, so The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole, of course, everybody knows is sort of the start of the Gothic from 1764. And that's full of extreme examples of the supernatural and ridiculous events. And then we're sort of more familiar perhaps with writers like Anne Radcliffe and all of this sort of dramatic chasing across Europe. And so Clara Reeve with her much more sort of reduced and narrow story I think um, in terms of its its scope, in terms of its supernatural, in terms of its tension is reduced. I mean, we tend to forget about it or pop it to one side, but I think it's important to uh, look at these lesser known texts and particularly when they're written by writers like Clara Reeve, who was sort of quite an important writer at the time doing work to sort of question and look at uh, the possibilities of fiction and a, a writer who is a woman who has often been ignored by the literary canon more generally um, and also in relation to the old English baron. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Does that make sense? I feel like my grammar got lost in the middle. No, make make perfect sense. Like, because it's, well, because there are a lot of other works that like Otranto is like the canon original one and then others like we that you've spoken about and that, we even read like The Monk by Matthew Lewis and others. So like, this is a short, very interesting one. And especially like at some point, I want to talk a bit about the preface, just maybe ask a bit because uh, Clara Reeve has a particular comment on like the Gothic and thinking about writing a Gothic novel. So that is, that's also really interesting. And especially like going at, into texts that are ignored by academic canon. Uh, so yeah definitely perfect reasoning there I think this is one of these where it's it can be sometimes part of an academic canon if you're studying you know sort of at master's level and you're going into a lot of detail on the gothic or or just undergraduate level going into a lot of detail on the gothic but it does tend to be sort of forgotten from the popular memory I think mm. um, and it's it's not necessarily at the top of those lists even in academia which is a shame. Yeah, it's it's a really good book. It's a really good book. So now we, <laughs> that's the, oh, this is always difficult to do. So <laughs> to try and um, sort of get into a brief like plot outline and what is this story about? You wanting me to do that? No, I'm happy to, yeah. Um, let me just get the names up. <laughs> so, so the Old English Baron is uh, the story of, well, <laughs> who is it the story of? because there are two sort of main contenders for sort of the main character. We have Sir Philip Harkley, who was the original champion of virtue from that original title. And then we also have Edmund Lord Lovell, as well, as we will discover he is later on in the novel. Um, and both of these are sort of key characters with key roles. So we start off with Sir Philip Harkley and we find out that he has been fighting abroad for many, many years. He comes back, tries to catch up with his friend, Arthur Lord Lovell, only to discover that he is dead. Um, now, when he goes to visit Lord Lovell's castle, he, founds that, he finds that the castle was taken over by Walter Lord Lovell, the cousin of his friend, and then sold to that cousin's brother-in-law, Baron Fitz Owen. 
and he meets Baron Fitzo and he meets his family and he meets a young man who's been fostered or adopted into that family called Edmund. And Edmund, as far as they're aware, is Edmund Twyford, uh, the son of a peasant. But in classic early Gothic style, he is not. Spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but what we then have sort of years later is we have Edmund adventures he goes to war in France with the rest of the family and because he's so amazing everybody's jealous of him and his kinsmen or the kinsmen of the family that he's been fostered by the Fitzowens they sort of turn against him create a lot of tension and try to get him thrown out of the family he ends up uh, as part of this something he's been accused of he ends up having to sleep in a, the haunted wing of the castle where he learns about his true parentage and the fate of his parents murdered by Walter the in um the cousin and then that's sort of the first half of the novel and that's the bit that most people remember and that's the bit where Edmund is really perhaps the protagonist and then you go into the second half of the novel where Edmund makes this plan to leave the castle, ends up going and sort of claiming asylum with, claiming friendship from Sir Philip Hartley. And Sir Philip Hartley takes him on, adopts him as a son, and then goes uh, into sort of the minutia of how to get his property back. <laughs> um, and that involves challenging Walter Lord Lovell, but it also involves a lot of complex negotiations with Baron Fitzowen, for example, who is depicted as being a very good man and so there's this question of, well, Baron Fitzowen bought the estate. So what happens now? Because it's his. It's not Walter's anymore. And there's a quite a lot of complicated manoeuvring around who inherits what. And that's how the story ends. So it doesn't end with sort of the revelation of a secret or a grand dramatic fight scene or an escape or anything like that. It ends with uh, sort of the very detailed... <laughs> discussion of kind of the marital bonds and inheritance that is sort of the end point of the story yeah that's yeah that's pretty much the perfect outline of the story and it is like you told me this there was a, a quite a large part about inheritance law and I was like okay let's, let's go into it but it's somehow it works really well and it was actually fun to just like this detailed minutia of how it works I mean, I think that's, it's one of the things that people complain about, but I also find it, for me and my tastes, really interesting. And I also sort of appreciate the fact that there's no fairy tale ending. Uh, there's very much a happy ending, but it's not a fairy tale ending because it's not sort of like, oh, look, we, we beat Sir Walter and everything's fine now. It's kind of getting into the complexities of what fine would look like, how much has to be negotiated and changed. And the fact that people will lose out, people will suffer in the course of righting wrongs, in the course of sort of rearranging this inheritance and dealing with these, this, this usurpation and these past crimes. And I think that that sort of reckoning that we go into so much detail on is a really important part of the novel and makes it really uh, continuing, continually relevant today, you know? Because it doesn't let us just escape with it. Oh, everything's fine now. Yeah, like one of the really interesting aspects is because there is this challenge between Sir Philip Hartley and Walter Lovell. And despite beating Walter Lovell and having him sort of confess, 
the establishment of like truth and the revealing of the murders and the cover up and all that it takes quite a long time it's a it's an arduous process and that is really interesting to see detailed how like yeah like we know what happened and we know this is the truth but how do we establish it as like not in a, a court of law so to speak but sort of how do we make it authentic mm. and establish it for the negotiations it's it's interesting it's strange it's strange to to read this novel but i again it works and as you said i think it really does help to keep it relevant as well i agree i love that the whole uh, sort of story with walter and his confession and then his retraction and the sort of the emphasis on how you gather sufficient proof in case it goes to a court of law, essentially, I think. Yeah. So you, you have, there's an emphasis on independent witnesses and on neutral witnesses and on sort of representatives who would be biased towards Walter. So they call the Baron Fitzowen to witness it as well, um, who, who you would expect, you know, would be on Walter's side if he could be. <laughs> and I think, I, I mean, I think that's fascinating. And I also love that, the fact that Walter changes his mind and he tries to go back on his confession, you know, now that death isn't looming in front of him, now he's not being denied a doctor until he confesses, which is essentially what happens in the book. He is, of course, trying to hang on to what he won by killing his cousin. <laughs> um, and I think it's really interesting as well how he ends the novel because they give him three choices and one of those choices is um, exile one is to go to a monastery and the other choice is to, to be, take it before the king essentially or take it to the court and he chooses to be exiled he doesn't use that exile as they wanted him to he ends up you know marrying and living this life overseas of adventure and warfare and you know he doesn't stop him essentially which I think is a really interesting kind of part of the narrative because you're used to, particularly with the Gothic and with these 18th century novels, these pat endings where you have a, a providential judgment and the good receive everything that they should receive and the bad are punished. And he's sort of punished, but also he's sort of not. <laughs> he gets away with a lot. Yeah, he gets away with a lot and he ends up in, you know, yes, he's exiled and exile is a, a very unpleasant situation, but he is also somebody who has made the most of that exile and not sort of gone on for this life of unending penance. You don't get the impression, I think, from him that he's ever particularly repentant. He never has to repent. He just, he just goes off and lives somewhere else and quite possibly murders somebody else for an inheritance. Who knows? <laughs> He's annoyed at best of like, yeah, I, I killed him, but I didn't manage to keep the castle because hauntings. But like, he's not, he doesn't regret it at any real point. He's like, damn, shouldn't have gone caught. Hmm. I mean, even that first confession is extracted from him very unwillingly. And it's not the kind of confession that we quite often see in Gothic novels, which is a wholehearted confession, you know, that I have done wrong and I have sinned against my family and there's no hope for me, which you find in uh, so Anne Radcliffe's The Castles of Athen and Dunbane, very similar confession, except it has an end point. You know, he says, I am wrong and I do deserve to be punished <laughs> and I will be. Whereas Walter's like, oh, I guess I did it, but like, oh, is it really my fault? <laughs> <laughs> you 
it was a castle and I wanted to marry his wife and like oh <laughs> like okay thanks Walter for that confession very heartfelt <laughs> yeah he confesses literally like at a sword's edge he's like confess <laughs> confess it's like okay fine I did it yeah. oh, I know and he, <laughs> he did it all he's probably one of the the worst villains in early gothic texts because he doesn't have any repentance and he does sort of terrible things like yes we we quite often find in these early gothic texts a very similar story of usurpation of property and a very similar story of murder of relatives or the murder of the original owner of the castle. We have it in uh, a lot of Anne Radcliffe novels. We have it in uh, the castle of Otranto. But there's a lot of detail about things that make this worse for the way Walter does it, like the description of the corpse and how he treats it, and then how he interacts with the widow as well, and sort of is trying to force her into to marriage, or the, the implication is, I would suggest, that he's trying to force her into a sexual relationship. And he's he's just so evil, <laughs> just so evil, and he just doesn't care, which is realistic, I think. You know, all of these yeah. deathbed confessions and you know changes of heart that you find in the Gothic, I never find them very convincing. I mean, the Atranto one, I think, was fairly convincing, considering the divine intervention there. But I mean, he he murdered most of his family by accident, didn't he? So <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, even with the Tranto, he was like, he was defeated, but he also, you got that sense that he had this guilt the whole time that he knew and he was battling this kind of guilt, but Walter's just like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I love the fact that he sold the castle as well. He had a problematic castle that was haunted by the victims and he was like, oh, get rid of it. (laughs) I'll sell it, get the money and move. Like he's not sort of faffing around, you know, being haunted and driven mad by the, the, you know, the telltale heart in his castle. He's, he's just very practically like, yeah, oh, okay, cool. You want to haunt me, but I guess you're stuck in the house. So bye. Really sensible, sensibly cruel villain. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Got to admire him, I think, <laughs> in, a, in a terrible way. But, you know, if you're going to be a villain, do it right. You know, don't repent. Don't, don't be weak about it. If you've done it and you wanted it, admit that you wanted it and sort of stick by, stick to your guns. Yeah. (laughs) And it's interesting because he also doesn't, like, he appears as a villain only by the time we figure out that, well, he did kind of kill them at the time of the haunting. But all the way until then, it's sort of this, the way the mystery is handled in that first part is really interesting as well, because usually it's this large tension of the reveal that, oh, what, what is going on? Who is involved? But in general, you have this sort of vague tension that like something weird happened. There's something overall strange about Edmund, about what happened to the Lovells, but it's never really like that pressing or that clear. Mm. So when that all comes into play, at, at least for me, it, it felt like, oh, oh. It's difficult for me to say because I've read it so many times that I can't remember my first interaction with it, you know. I do think that the first part of the story is very much just a biography of Edmund. So you get, you know, 
there's this whole section of of his adventures in France, which has nothing to do with anything uh, later on. <laughs> nothing to do with the mystery. <laughs> yeah, it's just like Edmund being great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Edmund's great. Everyone else is awful. And I mean, it's also focusing, of course, on his relationship with those family members um, and with William, particularly the younger brother. Uh, the, well, yeah, the younger brother of the two sons of the Baron Fitzowen, who is, uh, what's his name? Edmund, <laughs> Edmund's particular friend. And you get that sort of human interest angle, <laughs> but it's um, it's not really constructed as a mystery, I don't think. You, you have his biography, and it just so happens that part of his biography is this mystery. Yeah. I, I mean, you do have the sort of, the circle back because you start off with Sir Philip Harkley and the introduction of the death of his friend. So you do have it in the back of your mind, but because you go off on all these random adventures with Edmund, you're just like, Oh, what? Oh, I suppose I care about that. Cool. Um, we're on that subject now. And then afterwards as well, I think um, it's such a bold move because I was reading it in um, paperback for the first time in a while. Cause I usually read it uh, sort of in the facsimile copies that you can, you can find online. And I realized that it was literally sort of right in the middle of the book when you discover the murder and you discover what's happened and you have this supernatural dream. And then it's halfway through, they solve the mystery halfway through. Amazing. What, <laughs> what nerve. Solve the mystery halfway through. And then the rest of the book is, well, okay, actually knowing the mystery doesn't really solve anybody's problems. Now we've got to, you know, go through a whole tourney and challenge people to the kind of medieval equivalent of a duel <laughs> and then go through loads of property law and then go through loads of marriage law and then eventually maybe one day we'll get to Edmund inheriting his property. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So there were a lot of interesting things that I, uh, a couple of that I noted that I wanted to at least mention. Uh, we've gone through a couple of them. Oh, one of them that I think is kind of connecting to that. Walter is really horrible, we find out, on his unrepentance or what he did. But there even the other characters who get quite envious at Edmund, like there are very few like villainous or bad characters because like, especially with that title, it's like, oh, the, the old English Baron, I wonder if he's mean or evil or intrigue or whatever. And it's like, Baron Fitzowen is fine. He's a good guy, like, fine. <laughs> and there's just so many compliments and honorifics all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, everyone's great, moving on. Yes. I, I, I do wish there were slightly less I think, I mean, it ties back in with the kind of conservative class ideologies that you find in this text. Yes. And there's a lot of like, you know, falling on your knees in front of the Lord of the Manor and saying, I would do anything. I'd give up my whole life for you. You know, it happens with Edmund a lot of the time with Baron Fitzowen. Um, and because of the sort of the problems in the family that are caused by the jealousy of Edmund, and he ends up being like, oh, it's all my fault. How could I, a lowly serf, cause problems in this noble family? I must efface myself. And it's all very like, actually, no, they're wrong. <laughs> I don't care how noble they are, Edmund. They're wrong. Yeah. And you have it reflected in the servant, Joseph, who loves Edmund because he he's realized a while before anybody else that Edmund is probably 
the son of uh, the deceased Lord Lovell. And he's the same, like, the only thing I want in life is to see you become Lord Lovell and to serve you. And I'm like, oh, I'd be after after a pension at your age, Joseph. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, there's a lot of uh, very, very kind of traditional, very conservative class ideologies going on here. And I think it's interesting as well, if you think about the change of title, that the way in which that signals towards a particular class and feudal system or a system of patronage and a system of a sort of aristocratic system which is being reinforced by the book very very overtly yeah i mean i think the the most overt example of that is how how edmund is so amazing and so great he couldn't be like it's one that said a lot of like oh, he's too good. How is he a peasant? Like, he's so much better in his behavior. And it's almost unbelievable that he's a peasant. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, moving on. I think, like, this one, it's a tiny bit better than some of the others that I read. Because there are moments where, you know, when Philip Parkley first arrives and he hears about Edmund before he meets him, and he believes him to be the son of a serf or the son of somebody living on the land. He is like, ah, this is a, the example of a good Lord, Baron Fitzowen, because he is finding sort of merit in obscurity and raising it up mm-hmm. as though that's a thing that can happen more broadly, which I think is, is a nice part of mm-hmm. the discussion. And I'd love to say the rest of Philip Hartley's bit also points to a similar idea and similar concepts of potential equality. Um, And I mean, you do have him choosing to stay in the cottager's house and you do have him entering into this discussion with the cottager, but there's very much an emphasis on how superior he is to the cottager in that discussion. And then I also just, I I love how rich people depict the poor uh, sometimes because it's so ridiculous (laughs) that he's there in their house and their two room house and the, I can't remember how many children they have, but there's two of them and at least sort of like three children, many of whom are sort of grown at this stage. And normally they'd be split between the two rooms, but because this one guy, Sir Philip Harkley, he's in one room and everybody else is in another room. And they're like, oh, please come back. Please come and stay with us again. Just like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would happen. So it's a little bit better, I think, mm. than some examples of the time where you you have it being like there is no merit in obscurity it's it's only acceptable because he's secretly a prince or he's secretly a baron uh, but yes i do agree with you <laughs> it's it's just such a common trope of the period it's even a common trope into the 20th century in writers like georgia hare you know where it's like blood will out it's very you know quasi-eugenicist really yeah, no, exactly. Because it's like, oh, this noble blood does make you a superior person. And yes. Edmund is, at the end of the day, very superior in his almost obnoxious meekness in accepting mm-hmm. every single punishment. And it's like, you know, it is my fault. I should probably just leave. How dare I cause strife and confusion and etc. etc. <laughs> etc yes I mean it's also quite interesting for me is those those secondary characters that we sort of mentioned very briefly the the bad mm-hmm. characters the the envious cousins 
like Richard Wenlock is the worst of them. And he yeah. is the one who sort of sets up loads of traps to try and make Edmund look bad, um, which go usually sometimes quite hilariously wrong, I think. The one in France where he's like, ha-ha, we'll send Edmund off to do some sort of recce or to hijack a French supply unit, whatever the words are. I don't know. I don't speak medieval um, <laughs> French army words. Um, he sends him off to do that. And the idea is that they'll retreat and leave Edmund there. But and it ends up being that everybody ends up going because they'd intended to, to you know, not have the brothers not go themselves, just send Edmund. Um, and they end up all having to go. <laughs> and then Edmund sort of cutting a swath and saving everybody and then them running away and being branded cowards and everything, which is quite fun seeing their plans overturned. But I think there's an interesting, like, there's a nice, again, this is why I think of this text as being a little bit middling mm-hmm. um, in terms of its classism and its depiction of class. I mean, still very classist, but for the period, <laughs> um, is that you have these noble figures who are depicted as being sort of venial, as depicted as being unworthy of the title. So you are moving slightly away from the emphasis on blood. Slightly but it's still really there. It's still very there. It's not a trope that has been kind of upturned or done away with, which is sad. I'd love it if they just got rid of that. But yeah. yeah but it does make sense, like, especially because like, it's, even if like that does come out at the end of the day, it's like, oh yeah, he's noble because of all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There isn't, even in some of the other characters, like, as you mentioned, Joseph and, uh, the priest whose name I've forgotten. It's like Father Oswald. Yeah, Father Oswald. A lot of the nobles say for like, yeah, Baron Fitzowen, uh William, Sir Philip Harkley, aren't really the greatest. Mm-hmm. Like they're not bad, but they're not great. It's like so it it, it it makes sense to think of it all and to see it, especially in comparison to other works, as more middling, really. Hmm. A little bit. Yeah, I think I comparatively I I mean my scale is off because I read these books all the time you know so I'm used to just the depths of servants aren't really people kind of language you know but so but on that scale this is doing very well (laughs) but on a sort of normal scale of like what (laughs) what are you talking about (laughs) um servants would never you know servants servants are people and they are people with rich inner lives who are not going to be happy about sharing six to a bed so that a knight can have a whole room to himself (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) i keep reminding and i always forget which book we read for romancing the gothic that had this quote but it was like oh i'm all i'm all alone in the house well safe for the servants but you know i'm all alone what was that I don't remember it. Carmilla. Oh, right. <laughs> yep. Yes, Carmilla. <laughs> yeah. I'm alone except for about 50 people. <laughs> but they don't count because <laughs> they're servants. I mean, one of the things in this one that made me sort of laugh slash roll my eyes was it talks about John, who is the servant of Sir Philip Harkley. And so Sir Philip Harkley met John when he went to visit the Lovell Castle and when he stayed with the peasant family. And it's the son of the peasant family who he takes on to act as his servant, or I'm not quite sure what role he has. 
And you, you have this moment later where Edmund and John meet together. And essentially they could have had the same life, but they didn't. They were both sort of taken into the family by rich men. And Edmund was trained alongside the family and John wasn't, but it's depicted as being a natural distinction between them in the text. You know, that they are, you know, they're obviously different because Edmund is, is noble and John is not. But it also does say in the text, John, if he'd had the advantages of education. And it's like, well, whose fault is that? <laughs> you could have given him an education, couldn't you? It just, just made me laugh because it was all of those things sort of tying together. But the end result is that you have used that uh, blood is noble thing. You've made a sort of made an error <laughs> so that it's it's actually become your fault that he's not more um educated or more proficient in whatever they want him to be proficient in yeah yeah like the the the, the little cracks are more are quite visible in this text definitely <laughs> something that i've well i've been excited to talk about and one of the things that is well, it's your specialty and <laughs> couldn't not have you on not talk about it, which is the theology here. Yes, delightful. Um, the Old English Barons are really kind of rich mine for the discussion of theology within the text. And I think like part of that goes back to the preface that we mentioned earlier. Um, and there's this really important line in the preface that you know a lot of people mention because Reeve sees herself as very much writing within the tradition started by Horace Walpole. She sees her book as a successor to Horace Walpole, attempting the same project, which is to mix sort of the Gothic romance with all of its magic and adventure with the modern novel and all of its sort of realism, essentially, or mimeticism. But she basically uh, has a problem with Walpole's depiction of the supernatural. And she says that had the story been kept within the utmost verge of probability, the effect had been preserved. So what she effectively does, she says, is keep her supernatural within the verge of possibility. So what we have in her depiction of prophetic dreams, uh, dream communication with spirits, return of the dead, and a very active providence, which becomes a sort of form of magical, magical providence in a sense. It's a magical worldview uh, to think that providence is something that is magically sorting out everything. All of that, essentially, we have an insight into all of that being within the verge of probability at the time. So that's sort of where my starting point was for researching the book and then going back into the beliefs about dreams and about ghosts and about the supernatural more broadly, about the miraculous and about providence, we can see sort of very clear understandings at here of sort of theological understandings of all of those categories. So we have uh, sort of the depiction of dreams, for example. So Edmund is communicated with in dreams. He has dreams which provide kind of prophetic insight. And we can tie that back to the contemporary dream discourse and how dreams were understood. And there was often sort of a lot of theological rhetoric applied. Now, by the end of the 18th and early 19th century, we're moving into a dream discourse, which is really focusing and, and changing and has a lot more sort of proto-psychological and medical explanations. But mm -hmm. for those dreams, which are not easily explained by, so for example, it's something that I was thinking about today or, 
you know, uh, I heard a noise in my sleep. So this is what happened in my dream. There's still a lot of room for theological interpretation and engagement. And that is certainly what you see in the Gothic, particularly the Gothic is obsessed with these prophetic dreams and you see them in so many novels and short stories. So you have a very particular theology of the dream here. You have the dream as a sort of space where the soul is free while the body is sleeping. And in that space, of spiritual freedom or soul freedom, you are much more open to divine communication or in the case of the Old English Baron, communication with the deceased, which is um, a view that we see in writers like uh, Thomas Tryon from the 17th century, Malcolm McLeod from the 1790s. And we also have this idea of the dream as being sort of part of a very active providence and a medium of divine communication. So there's also a very particular idea of the relationship of the divine and the world in that this is a, a universe where prayer is active and effective in the moment, where God responds to the changing uh, sort of patterns of the world, but where he is also in a sort of form of providential control foreseeing and uh, sort of causing to occur different futures. And we see him through these dreams taking a very active role and through the other magical events that happen in the text, such as the magically opening doors when Edmund returns to the castle. We see this idea of not just a providential universe with the very sort of natural theology understanding of providence, where providence works according to God's manipulation right at the beginning of time of the laws of providence, uh, the laws of nature, so that it will all work out how he wanted it to. We see sort of a, a very active, miraculous almost providence with mm -hmm. God intervening in the daily lives of people, responding to uh, kind of particular needs and really engaged with humanity, which is, I think, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> Um, and there's a there's a lot in here. There's a lot in the Old English Baron. I think you'll probably have noticed it, Frank. There's kind of continual references to prayer, continual references to providence, continual references to sort of a theologized understanding of the social order, for example. Yeah. And you know, all of these supernatural events are understood through a, through a particular uh, theological framework. So when he sees the ghosts, he's not scared of the ghosts because he's understanding them within a sort of providential framework that ghosts can only appear if allowed by God and that no sort of devil or uh, malign spirit could hurt one of the virtuous anyway without sort of God's special dispensation. So there's this sort of sense of security in facing the undead that he has that uh, sort of the, the evil cousins or the bad cousins, you know, Richard Wenlock, they don't have that sort of security, partly because they don't have a fully formed theological understanding of the ghost, but also because they don't have that assurance of virtue. So yeah, that's a little bit of a potted intro to the theology. I could talk about it for hours, but I won't. Um, I'll just stop, <laughs> stop there. No, but that, that, that was excellent. And indeed, there are so many references to like, providence and how providence as like connecting to Edmund's actions and how he would behave and how he wants to behave and how he considers his behavior in relation to providence so it is the theology there is really strong and one of the interesting things about it especially given the ghosts that is it's not a supernatural explained 
no. as it happens to a lot of other gothic novels. It's it's very much like, yeah, no, these are the ghosts, these are the prophetic dreams, these are the noises. Yeah, this is all this is all a thing. And it it's great. <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting to me because obviously I look at this book in accordance and and then a lot of other books as well alongside it from authors like Anne Radcliffe for using the supernatural explained. And I think it's really interesting when you read these books together that you can see these same beliefs occurring even in those books that are having an unexplained, uh, having an explained supernatural, sorry. Um, And there's a lot of overlap in the ghost beliefs, either being depicted or explored or rejected as well sometimes. I think they do read interestingly together. And you can see that there's actually quite similar theological subtexts in different books. Um, And, you know, I talk about this all the time, that there are different forms of both the supernatural uh, unexplained and the supernatural explained and different theologies represented in, in both not that there's one supernatural explained theology and one supernatural unexplained theology, but there's multiple supernatural unexplained and multiple supernatural explained theologies. And that Gothic novels really, if you read them quite attentively to how these depictions are put together and to that language of providence with this understanding that there are different contemporary understandings of providence, different contemporary understandings of the ghost, um, you can actually start to pick out and find the really kind of rich theological debates about these issues that were occurring at the time, which is obviously what I do. So that's fascinating to me, but I don't know if anybody listening is like, "Mm, I must go and find out about the theology of, you know, ghosts now from Gothic novels. You might not want to, but you can. (laughs) Yeah. And it's one of the things that you've, you've said, like even the most minute or small details, there's usually a colossal, theological debate around them and to ghosts and whatever ghostly aspect or detail you might consider there's usually a pretty big century-old debate about it which I find fun (laughs) yes I mean definitely like in this one I think with the dreams you that one of the sort of main controversies that you might see around some of the dream belief that is occurring in this book are things about the communication with the dead and the extent to which angelic spirits appear in the dream in the guise of the dead in order to enact a vengeance on behalf of the dead, or whether the dead are able to communicate, or whether the dead uh, are allowed by providential means, or if it's sort of a facsimile of the dead in order to sort of orientate the dreamer in terms of what they are interacting with. So there's all sorts of kind of debate about what's possible regarding the dead and the dream in the period, which is. Yeah, it's fun. It's There's a lot of sort of stuff to wade through. It seems like a fairly simple uh, sort of idea. Oh, the dead can appear in dreams. <laughs> but then, you know, sort of 7,000 pages of debate later, you're like, oh no, there's lots of nuance apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I, I remember reading, I didn't finish it, but it was uh, an actual study about prophetic dreams. And like, I think around the same time, but considering like how they exist historically in like foundational myths. So for example, Portugal's mythical foundation is based on a theological providential dream that they would be victorious in a military battle. So an ample debate on how like, wait, how do you establish it to be a prophetic dream? How do you establish it to be like 
natural influences or demonic influences and just how how that changed over time as well so yeah it's it, i i enjoy these debates yes. I, I i'm not sure how our listeners feel but it's a it's good to make contact with them and like how how these things can appear at times I mean, this isn't a fun one for like demonic dreams. Demonic dreams are probably the kind of funner end of the spectrum of what I, I work with. You know, I think like in this book, there's never really a question about whether the dreams are from a good source or not. Not really. Whereas in other books, of course, it becomes a really pivotal question, your interpretation of the dream. And if you interpret it wrong, you'll probably die. And that definitely happens in the monk. Like dreams are misinterpreted as either divine or angelic. Or, or as natural dreams that have no kind of external source and people die because of it. Yeah. So extreme. Interpreting dreams is important. It's a vital skill to have. Exactly. But I mean, the problem is with this like vital skill is that the solution, the most kind of prevalent solution at the time is, okay, don't try and overinterpret it. There's no such thing as a dream guide that can tell you symbols. You know, don't presume that everything has meaning. Don't presume that everything is a revelation. Sort of think about it and wait to see what happens. <laughs> that is basically the, the advice with what to do with dreams. You know, put it to the test of scripture. First of all, does it does it align with scripture? If it doesn't, it's a demonic dream. Nice and easy. Uh, if it does align with scripture, well, wait and see if it's actually scripture, uh, if it's actually from a divine or angelic source. And you'll know about it after the dream becomes a reality or after what it prophesies happens. And then you'll know. And it's like, well, that's probably going to be too late, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's not very helpful, but thanks. <laughs> okay, then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that you that you noted down in the outline and that I I also wanted to ask and talk a bit about because it, it's important about that resolution we talked a bit uh, quite a lot about how the focus on the economics and the inheritance and the fo details on that but how well how women are depicted in the text especially as we at the end we have the marriage and how how that is at least to me, very strangely set up. Okay. What, what for you is the, like the strangeness of it? Well, the, well, first things first, Emma, who eventually does marry Edmund, seems to show up out of nowhere. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. while we are told that the Fitzowen family has like their sons and the daughters, like she, when, when she becomes relevant, then she's named and appears. And then she has a, a long conversation with Edmund about weird hypothetics, hypotheticals where he's talking to her about how, well, there's a friend of mine who maybe if he would be worthy and if it would all be well, he would like to marry you. But that, alas, that is not the case. And he perhaps is not noble enough to marry you. And uh, and then she that and then she becomes like a secondary character. But until then, she's not. She's not even named. So that is, I think, the fact that that comes up very suddenly. And then it's like, oh, this is important to the resolution now. But this is important overall. Um, that's what I found, well, maybe overall strange. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to judge very well in comparison to other <laughs> Gothic novels, but objectively, at least. 
I mean, there's a lot of like tidying up of endings at the end. So there's Emma that you meet sort of halfway through. So she she's the first woman really kind of introduced properly. And then later you have, I don't even know who it is, but like the daughters of some of the people who judged the tourney end up marrying, you know, uh, the Robert Fitzowen, the oldest son of the Baron Fitzowen. And just these yeah. women that come as part of the, the prize almost. And I think that's the way it's staged as well that um so there's a question about what happens with basically the land rents that the baron fitzowen has been receiving over the course of his sort of occupation of the property and it comes about the sort of resolution to this is okay well don't give him the money back because also you're in this situation where you know you bought this property in good faith um, and you paid money for it. So why should you, you know, it's a, a complicated issue. And the res- resolution is, okay, we'll give him Emma to marry. Give him your daughter to marry because he wants to marry her. And it's like, oh, oh I don't think I like that. <laughs> I don't think I like the fact that she's being offered as part of the deal. But then it gets worse because Robert, the son of the, the Baron Fitz, I mean, doesn't want uh, Edmund to marry Emma. But... So his father says, oh, basically, okay, well, if you want to marry this woman, then you have to let him marry Emma. So this other woman then becomes part of this kind of marriage inheritance deal as well. And it's all a bit like, oh, I'd love some women to have agency, I think, actually, that would be lovely. Um, I mean, you do see that Emma wants to marry Edmund, you know, so I mean, that's a good thing, at least. Um, yeah. And the oldest daughter, the daughter who marries Robert Fitzowen, she's like, yeah, yes, sure, whatever. But yeah, it's a it's a strange kind of way of introducing those marriages and the way of conceiving of them within the story is, I mean, you know, fairly typical to the time in terms of the fact that marriages were often dynastic. They were often concerned with the inheritance of property. Uh, probably not very of the time how freely these nobles are just uh, being given and offered in marriage to each other mm-hmm. without any intervention from sort of, uh, you know, uh, any outside agency. Um, but it's uncomfortable for the modern reader, I think. And it, I think it's also quite interesting, um, which makes it more uncomfortable, even in the 18th century context, is that the other Gothic novels of the period are much more Uh, sort of concerned with female experience often but also much more concerned with women's economic status women um, as choosing marriage and who they choose for their marriage now that's you know that's less so than in these earlier novels less so in for example the castle of chanto less so in the castles of athen and dunbane but i think it's still the framing in in the old english baron is probably the worst where she's basically just kind of part of an inheritance just like, oh, we'll have my daughter instead of me having to pay you any money, I guess. Yeah, and she does kind of come out, out of nowhere. Like, I know I know, I talked to you about this uh, before, Frank. I know I do this all the time, and I, I find it very difficult not to queer ship stuff. But in this one, you know, he has this very intense friendship with William where they're completely inseparable. Whatever happens, whatever sort of calumnies are thrown at him, you know, William is there by his side and they call him, he calls him beloved and, you know, he, he hugs his knees a lot and they're, you know, they're just inseparable. And then suddenly Emma out of nowhere. 
uh, and you're like oh you've been in love with Emma I, I guess like okay but we've not met her before now and she doesn't seem to do anything also she just seems to sort of walk around the garden maybe I don't know I don't know not convincing me I think part of this is the imposition you know I don't think that what Clara Reeve was doing was trying to get rid of sort of queer tension I don't think that she would have seen it there I don't think she would have uh, necessarily uh, been introducing it into the text I mean who knows but I don't think so but I think there is this imposition at the end of a sort of very heteronormative happy ending this is what a happy ending looks like but it's also sort of quite a misogynistic heteronormative ending specifically because it's it's his happy ending it's sort of a heteronormative ending in which he receives or kind of wins a bride, but there's not really much emphasis on her heteronormative happiness or heteronormative ending. But yeah, there's this kind of like midway through, you're like, ooh, better throw in some heteronormativity. Here, here, have a lady that you've been in love with for years inexplicably. Yeah. Yeah. What I would say, probably my summary <laughs> of uh, the Emma question. No, I agree it really makes sense when you put it like that because it's almost as if well how do you characterize this happiness it requires this heteronormative marriage this union in this particular way even if there was well she was literally unnamed before and this is the first time we've heard of him being in love with someone which she apparently kind of liked him too okay if you say so it's just like i'm not buying it i'm not buying it but I mean, this does happen in, in other novels, but there is more sort of pining. There's a lot of pining in the early Gothic novels, you know, where you get the castle of Otranto and Matilda's like, oh, look at him, but he cannot be mine for he is a poor. And, you know, castle of Athens and Dublin. I keep using castles of Athens and Dunbane because it's Radcliffe's earliest work and it's the 1780s. So it's quite a similar time frame. Um, and it's also one of these ones that's set in the medieval times. It's also one of these that has a, a, a prince in disguise, you know, a, a baron in disguise. But uh, that's the same. You 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 have a, a you have a sort of Emma in that one. But there's a lot of kind of like, you know, the hand touch, the yearning gaze across the about the, the ballroom or the feasting room, and then there's there's the sort of like, milady. If I were, no, I cannot speak it, you know, and sort of striding off into the distance. Um, there's a lot more play on it. Whereas this one, it's just like, wham, we're in the garden. He's making an absolute mulloch of trying to declare his love to her. Like, what are you doing, Edmund? <laughs> it's like you're in high school where he's, you know, like, oh, my friend likes you. And she's she's very, like, understandably like, well, I don't really want to marry your weird friend that I've never met. <laughs> No, William. Uh, William? No, Edmund. <laughs> you see, a bit of a Freudian slip there. Secretly, he's in love with William. That's what I mean. I mean. <laughs> but it makes, it makes so much sense because <laughs> the relationship of Edmund and William is so much more developed than the one with Edmund and Emma. Yeah. So William is always the one who is unwavering in his belief and support of him, no matter what. He's like, no, I, I stand by him. Even when there's the whole mess of the negotiations and what's going to happen next, he's like, no, I support Edmund regardless of what happens. I support him. So it's okay. Sure. I mean, at the end as well, where like 
you know, it's all been settled. He's married. Everybody's been given their inheritance. William doesn't actually have an inheritance. <laughs> he cares about William, apparently. But, you know, Edmund is like, William, you have to stay and live with me forever. William, stay. <laughs> and you're like, oh, come on. <laughs> this is such a better ship than him and Emma. I mean, I know that's not very professional of me to, to think about the book in terms of shipping. But, you know, there's a lot of this. There's a lot of this in the in these gothic novels, I think, and some of them it's it's very much like okay, well these are, are different representations of masculinity in the times that can be read as gay. But there's also there's things like this where it's like well, the the key relationship in this book, however you define it, is between him and William, like very clearly because you know there's the sharing of secrets. There's, there's intimacy and there's closeness there's physical closeness yeah. that's repeated a lot and there's a sort of confidence between them and you know the only person that he spoke to or gave any indication about his sort of what was happening when he left the castle to go and pursue his you know his claim the only person he talked to was William nothing for Emma didn't think about her who cares so I think like you know that relationship is central however you're wanting to think about it and I just wish that there didn't have to be this sort of heteronormative gloss because you don't have to make it overtly queer. You don't have to you have this sort of gay narrative to not be heteronormative, you know, but the heteronormative gloss is when you just throw a random romance in that makes no sense. Uh, it doesn't sort of fit the narrative, but what you're doing by throwing that romance in is saying that what a happy ending looks like is this. It looks like being married to a woman. It looks like having a, a sort of hetero partner and having a child. That's what a happy ending is. And I mean, obviously I'm not particularly engaged with that narrative, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it just seems a shame. If you're going to do it, do it well, you know, throw in some pining or something. Yeah pining guys like even a tranto has quite a lot of pining now that's oh, so much so much mooning around being like i can't marry you for my father would never allow me okay such a drippy book such the romance in it is awful <laughs> but it it's there it's there though <laughs> yeah like it's not something that parachutes down out of nowhere it's just like yeah no it's it's inscribed into it even as silly as it is yeah I mean the other thing with Emma in this book which is it's such a strange thing I think to find in a book written by a woman and I don't say that to suggest that Clara Reeve was unique in doing this because she wasn't at all in writing sort of what we would now sort of the term we would use now is quite sexist portrayals of women but you know there were lots of other portrayals that were very similar to Emma um, in different ways but the thing that just annoyed me throughout this book is every time anything is happening they're like oh Emma you don't do this you go away you go sit in your room while we do this while we open this chest or we look at this note or we open this door um, you go away because this is not for a woman's eyes <laughs> and I mean that's a very common trope you know it's common trope women do reproduce it but it always just I just don't understand why women reproduce it because I can't imagine writing anything like that myself I can't imagine writing anything which is sort of basically women can't cope women are inferior 
I'm just going to throw that into my narrative. Why would you? I don't. I mean, I I do know why. I know the sort of ingrained uh, understandings of gender and, and class and role that are being kind of depicted and reproduced in this text, but it still still just irks me. Yeah, yeah, just just showing her way because because she's a lady. She can't possibly, you know, see a dead body, or she might, I don't know, dissolve. Speaking of, I think the only person who actually swoons in this book is Edmund. Oh, yeah. He is swooning all over the place. I mean, <laughs> like, the, the thing that's always quite a, a funny mix in a lot of these early Gothic novels is you have these medieval settings for some of them, and particularly like the very early ones, the ones I keep mentioning, very medieval settings, but you have this imposition of the 18th century concept of sensibility, and this emotional receptivity, uh, which is an emotional receptivity or very sort of uh, extreme emotions that are expressed bodily, um, you know, through tears, through sighs, through fainting. And this kind of conception of sensibility as this uh, high emotion, as high taste, as well as this sort of keenness in, in terms of, once again, of like a sensitivity, I guess. I keep coming back to that word. <laughs> but you have that sort of ethical, moral code and that aesthetic idea of the sensibility thrust back into the medieval period and so you get Edmund just swooning all over the place and crying a lot all the time on everybody which I think is it's a really interesting bit of historical overlap you know overlapping the 18th century discourse with the medieval discourse I don't think that those were sort of the norms of behavior that were actually occurring at the period in which the novel is set you know it's this very 18th century concept of sensibility which has a quite a defined shelf life you know sort of within that 18th century and very early 19th century period uh, because it doesn't really it doesn't really work as uh, there's lots of sort of problems that people kept sort of picking away at with sensibility um, and one of those is you know that it, it leads to emotional extremes and it leads to unbalance and it's all very well sort of talking about you know okay you have moral taste and you have ethical taste and everything because you have sensibility because you're capable of feeling and these feelings lead you to virtue but actually feelings just lead you to lots of different places don't they and um, yeah. and, and feeling and crying all the time makes you a little a tiny little bit useless not to say that people can't cry and express emotions very good everybody should express emotions um, but if you're going to sort of have a meltdown every five seconds because you've seen a sunset or because somebody's been kind to you, it's not a very sort of sustainable way of living, unfortunately. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I don't know, I, I think we, we've talked about a lot about, I think, kind of the key points while mentioning a lot and going into the gothic and the gothic at this time so i think unless uh, there's anything else you felt like we left out or that you wanted to add i think kind of carry on to a conclusion yeah that sounds good to me yeah i think overall it's it's a different but very good gothic novel with a lot of like issues of the time and afterwards and strange things but it's one, it's short, which also helps, but it's one that is, I liked it. I actually liked, I read it in a day, which is uncommon for me lately, 
but it was it was good. I, I had a lot of fun, both with the mystery, the minutiae, even the characters at times, and <laughs> William and Edmund's relationship. Yeah. We can dream. <laughs> we can dream. But yeah, just really good and really fun to go through like these gothic novels and to take the time to stop, think and talk about them. It, it's been great, Sam. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. So where can people find your work and support you? Because, you know, you do a lot of that. Yes, I do. Um, I mean, I've I've tried to put everything more or less together on the website. So the romancingthegothic.com website, where you can find uh, videos of past classes that we've done. And I've done specifically, if you've been interested in any of the things that I've been talking about today, I've got classes on the history of the Gothic. I've got classes on ghosts. I've got classes on dreams. And then there's also classes by lots of other people as well. Um, But you can also find on the webpage, you can find the list of my publications. Most of them are open access or just get in contact with me. If there's one that isn't that you want to read, I'm happy to supply it to people. If you're wanting to uh, support me, there are also links on the webpage. I do have a Ko-fi. I do have a Patreon. um, If it's something that you want to sort of support the project, um, but everybody's very welcome. Um, I would love to see sort of more people uh, joining us. There's always there's always room for more, um, and it's we try to create sort of quite a friendly atmosphere. It's not limited to people who are in academia or are studying these subjects. It's open to anybody who'd like to join us that just has a sort of interest in any of these things. And we do a really large range. <laughs> <laughs> of different <laughs> classes so this week for example we're talking the philosophy of horror with the philosopher Dylan Trigg um, but we're also talking about love love and r- horror in romance <laughs> with me and Tanagra um, so there's a, there's a range all the time we've done everything from Ossuaries to Stephen King um, from history to uh, film so you know this should be something for everybody and we do welcome anybody that would like to join us yeah, I like. I mean, I joined as sort of an enthusiast and someone who knew very little about the Gothic, and well, th- that's been an intensive year of learning <laughs> in the best way possible. So I, I really can't recommend uh, following along, watching what makes sense of everything if you have the time and the motivation to, <laughs> like I do. But I can't, I can't recommend it enough. It's just a great space and a great many things to learn, get into contact with and people too. Like there's just so much good work being done and to be aware of certain questions, even like, oh, I'm not, to give an example, like I'm not working or studying with the Gothic directly or even horror, uh, but it has been influencing my writing and a lot of different perspectives that we've had on like non-binary and bisexual representation and uh, even some of the workshop as well to to include about this. So yeah, definitely, definitely recommend supporting Sam or following Romance in the Gothic. It's just, it's great. It's simply great. From us, you can f- follow, if you can support us on Patreon as well at patreon.com forward slash left page, where we have both monthly like shorter poetry episodes where we take a poem or a couple of short poemy things uh, to talk about which is strange and fun and the reading corner where i basically get either some other fiction piece or some academic reading that i've been doing or even i know more random stuff 
to take some time to talk about a bit and do some actual writing on them, which is helpful for me and is more doable than like a third audio thing. So please check those out if you're interested. There are several free ones, including one where I compliment Romancing the Gothic because I love it so much. Uh, <laughs> so if you're interested, I'm sure you can find some examples of what I've been doing. And yeah, let us know if you can support us or not or just follow along. Um, we're also on Twitter at LeftPagePod and me personally as well at Frank Gothic. And yeah, I think that's it from us. Thanks, thanks again so much, Sam. This this was really fun, really interesting. Love to talk about it. And again, excellent suggestion. Oh, my pleasure. I'm just glad somebody actually liked it. <laughs> I did. I, I really did like it. It, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I legitimately really quite enjoy it. And it's very readable for an 18th century novel, I think. Yes. I mean, I think I've been trained. The, the past year has helped training me to read it. So it was like it all came to a head uh, preparing me for this episode. <laughs> that was my plan. Well, it worked. Congrats. <laughs> thank so, yeah. Uh, thank you so much, everyone. And till the next one. <laughs>